0: Well good morning everyone. Uh, It's really good to be here and uh, I wish I could say I bring greetings from all those in San Diego but I honestly uh, don't know. Some of you may know that I'm in the middle of a sabbatical so I haven't been to Lighthouse San Diego for uh, a little while and I don't know how many of them know that I'm up here but if they did know they would say hi. So greetings (laughs) from San Diego. And uh, I just, I'm really grateful to the Lord in working this out. Uh, you know, if, if you know me, I've got energy to spare. And uh, uh, this is my first sabbatical in a couple of decades of ministry. And uh, it was only because I kept telling the elders, I don't think I need it. I don't think I need it. And now that I have one, I realize how much I needed it. And so I'm really grateful. Uh, and also the fact that it frees up our family to be able to come up and minister to you and to be with you. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do, to co- go to the other Lighthouse churches, and especially to come up here to San Jose to see old friends, to meet new friends, and it's a, it's a joy. And uh, just uh, really thankful for Mark and Julie, uh, for their hospitality, their generosity, and their, uh, their friendship. It, it is something I just praise God for uh, again and again. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. Ephesians chapter 4, and this morning we're looking at verses 14 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and just for the sake of getting some context here, I'm going to read from verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and this is God's Word. And He gave some as apostles. And some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we open up his word together. Gracious God, we're so thankful for this time, and I'm grateful for this body. Lord, for this ministry here in San Jose and the impact that they've had on this community and the encouragement that uh, Mark and the leaders here have been uh, to the precious saints who are here. I pray, Father, that you would bless our time as we open up your word. And God, we confess our dependence, our neediness upon you. Lord, we need you if we're going to understand your word. And so we pray that you would instruct us, that your spirit would open our hearts to hear your truth. And Lord, if there's any need of change, that you would help produce that change in us, that we might think your thoughts and walk your ways and thereby grow in grace. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would accomplish all that you would here this morning in us, as we are your people and you are our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just out of curiosity, do we have anyone here who's had a baby in the last year? Anyone? Any baby, new baby? Put them up high. Okay, great. Uh, I'm I'm, usually in the back right? <laughs> and uh, I, I really do uh, praise God for, for that and for you. Uh, some of you may know, or maybe you don't, that uh, that is my favorite stage. Like one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to go and visit couples at the hospital and meet babies, newborn babies. It's my favorite stage of having kids. And now that my three are a little bit older, I am sorely missing that phase. I I love holding newborns, and uh, I love meeting uh, new babies. I don't know if if you're in that camp, uh, but one of the reasons I love babies, I love that stage, even as a parent, I can deal with the explosive diapers, and I can deal with the spit up and all of that. But one of the great reasons I love that stage is that that baby can't go anywhere right? Like you plop that thing down and you could like walk away and come back and that baby is still there, right? It's not like a toddler that you constantly have to have eyes on them and keep, keep, keep watch over them and make sure they're not getting themselves in trouble. With a baby, you can just plop them down and walk away and do your thing and come back and it's very convenient. It's wonderful. But one of the things that you expect is a baby is born is that you would expect some development, right? That over time, you would expect that baby to grow. That growth is a goal. And I remember with our three going to the doctor's visits and the checkups and stuff, and they wanted to make sure that with time, there was a certain amount of development. You know, are they talking yet? Are they walking yet? Can they identify certain shapes yet? How is their hearing? How is their vision? Are things developing the way that they ought to develop, and if things are not developing the way that they ought to develop, if you're not seeing those milestones along the way that you would expect to see, then understandably there would be a bit of concern. Well, it's no different when we talk about our spiritual lives, that when we are saved by the grace of God, in a lot of ways, spiritually speaking, we are kind of like infants, But what you would expect to see over time is growth. You would want to see development. You want to see certain milestones along the way. What does that growth look like? And here in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul addressing the church at Ephesus is focusing in on this theme of maturation. What does that growth look like? And in verses 11 through 13, he talks about the means for that growth. How does God bring that growth along? Well, he does so by gifting to the church spiritual leaders that will communicate to the church the word of God, that by it we might grow with respect to our salvation. But in verses 14 through 16, he then identifies what does that growth look like? What are those milestones that we ought to see in our spiritual development? And if we don't see those things, should we not be concerned? And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to be looking at two benefits. Two benefits to spiritual maturation. Two benefits to spiritual maturation. What is the look of spiritual maturity? What are the things that we want to see in our lives? What does that development look like? So that if we see it, we can be encouraged. And if we don't see it, then we ought to be concerned and work hard at it in dependence on the Lord. Two benefits to spiritual maturity. And the first we see in verse 14, that the first benefit is that you grow up from naivety. You grow up from naivety. Verse 14 says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. We're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness, in deceitful scheming. The Apostle Paul communicates to the Ephesians that they were no longer to be children. The Greek word there, Napios, is literally a word that describes infants. or or very young children, it's a word that could describe a a, a person from birth all the way to kind of like puberty. This is a young child. This is a naive child. This is a dependent child. And, And when it comes to our thinking, we are no longer to be children. As I was thinking about this verse, it got me thinking, you know, we have kids here, right? How many kids do we have here? I heard that the kids are going to be here. Kids, if you're here, can you raise your hand? Raise your hand. All right. So we have some kids here. And isn't it like kids? Okay. I'm not going to to rail on you too much, but I'm just going to warn you kids that your parents know far more than you think they do. Right? Your parents know far more than you think they do. It's kind of like kids to think that my parents are out of date. My parents are unknowing. They're not with the times. Uh, I don't know how many times growing up, my dad would teach me different things, and and I would just kind of dismiss it. What, Dad, what do you know, right? And then I would talk to, like, my friends, and they would tell me the same thing, and I would listen to them, right? Or I would listen to my Sunday school teachers, I would listen to my my pastors, but I wouldn't listen to my parents, because what do my parents know? And what's shocking to me as a parent, now that I'm a dad, it's, it's kind of freaky how much I sound like my dad, even sometimes with the broken English. It, it's hilarious, you know, those legacies that were passed down and the, 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 the teachings that were passed down, you know. I, I remember my dad would always talk about accidents, you know, you don't want to, but it happens. And I'm like, what does that even mean, right? But now I say it myself and I'm like, whoa, that's weird, right? I remember my dad always telling us to slow down when we eat our food. Chew your food. Enjoy your food. Because once you swallow it, it's poop. Right? And so I'm like, I don't know why that's stuck. But it's stuck. And, and now I can pass these things down to my kids. And they can gain from the wisdom of my father. Kids are naive. Kids are unknowing. I was about maybe 16 years old when I got my first Uh, credit card. And and some of you may have this experience yourselves. I hope you don't. But I must have been the luckiest person on the planet when I got my first credit card, because I got a phone call from someone who told me that I won a sweepstakes. And I thought, oh my goodness, of all the people in all the planet, they chose me. And I won a free trip, and I won all these different prizes, and all they needed was my credit card number because they said, we can give you the prize, but we do need to charge you for the tax. And I was like, that's incredible. I'm happy to pay this, right? <laughs> and so I gave them all my information, they charged the card, and shocking, right? I didn't win anything. Uh, I told my parents. And and they were a bit sympathetic and said, you know what, you're young, you don't know, but these things happen all the time. And I had to call the credit card company and explain to the credit card company what had happened. And the lady on the other side uh, treated me like I was the stupidest person on the planet. Like, how would you fall for that? Of course that's a scam. Of course that's a scam. But I didn't know. I was young. I was naive. I was unknowing in my thinking. What was necessary was maturation, right? If I had just consulted my parents, they could have warned me of that danger. It's one thing to be spiritually unknowing at the point of your conversion. It's one thing to be naive, you know, in the infantile stages of your salvation. But obviously, as you grow, as time progresses... You would want to see maturation. The assumption is that you would develop, spiritually speaking. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. And one of the benefits to that maturation is that you no longer live in that naivety. You're no longer tossed back and forth by every wind and every wave of doctrine. The language that he uses in verse 14 is like a ship at sea. During a storm that's raging and it lacks an anchor. You know, one wave comes and throws them one direction. Another wave comes, throws it another direction. It's the language of maturation. And the idea here is that the winds and the waves come at random from every different direction. It's every wind, it's every wave. Spiritual infants haven't progressed from elementary basic doctrines to grow in understanding and to deepen their theology. It's similar to what Paul had said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2 where he says, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able. I mean, how demeaning would that be for me? Like if we went out to, you know, Classy joint, McDonald's, right? If we went out to, to grab a meal together, you know, my, my, my son now is at the level of like double-doubles at In-N-Out. And I'm like, that is crazy, right? Graduating from the Happy Meal. But what if we went to McDonald's and, and I just assumed, I ordered for you. You know, he wants the cheese, cheeseburger Happy Meal with the 2% milk and apple slices. I mean, that would be just so sad. We want to see development. We want to see maturation. And just like it would be weird, right? If I was up here standing in a diaper and spitting up and unable to talk, I mean, if that was the state that I was in, then you would rightfully assume that something was seriously wrong. If I was a baby, totally normal. But as a full-grown adult, you would expect that development. You would expect that maturation. You would expect me to be able to swallow solid food and no longer be dependent upon my mother's milk. Paul, talking to the Corinthians, says, I can't even give you solid food. And the assumption there is you should be able to to digest that. But I gave you milk to drink. The author of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Where he writes, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil." You see, a key contributing factor as we look at these verses, a key contributing factor to stunted spiritual growth is malnutrition. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. How do we grow? We grow by the intake of God's word. This is why in verses 11 through 13 he had said, this is why God has gifted the church apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers. This is why we have these men serving in the church to to deliver the word of God to you that by it you might grow with respect to your salvation. We need God's word to grow. We need it to grow. And we ought to want that growth for ourselves. It's not like our little one, our little Emma. She's five now, right? And Emma is not allowed to turn six. We told her, you have to stay five forever. Actually, we told her she needed to stay two forever, but she's disobedient. <laughs> right? And so what do we tell Emma? We tell Emma, you're not allowed to eat vegetables. Only junk food, right? No vegetables. It's kind of a reverse psychology thing going on here, right? Because then she responds, no, I want vegetables. I want vegetables. Because she wants to grow. And she's turning six this year. And that's incredible. And she'll tell me, I'm going to turn six and seven and eight. And now, slow down. (laughs) Right? But we tell her, you can't eat vegetables. Only junk food. So that you won't grow. Obviously, as parents, we don't want that. We want her to grow. We want her to develop. We want her to be strong. And it's the same thing spiritually. We want that growth in our lives. We want to develop. Because... Consider these sad tendencies of spiritual immaturity. A stunted spiritual growth, a a spiritual uh, retardation. Consider these sad tendencies. First, that spiritual infants tend to believe the first thing that they hear. Just like me with the credit card company, right? Spiritual infants tend to believe simply the first thing that they hear. I remember when I was younger in the faith, and I was listening to a radio program, and there was a pastor on the radio that was saying, you know, how wonderful is it that now that we are saved by Jesus Christ and and God's grace, that God no longer chastises us. He no longer spanks us. And I was so excited. I was like, this is such great teaching. And I went to my friend, and I was like, look, isn't this wonderful? And I communicated to her, and she immediately turned me to, to the book of Hebrews. That God, as a loving father, disciplines his children. And I was like, but then why did he say what he did? I I bought into that hook, line, and sinker. I heard it and believed it, and it was right. You know, spiritual infants tend to believe the first thing that they hear. Secondly, spiritual infants don't know how to discern truth from error. They don't know how to discern fact from fiction. Third, spiritual infants are prone simply to follow popular trends. They go with the flow. They go with the crowd. What is the rest of the church doing? If it's popular, it must be right. Fourth, because they lack biblical discernment, spiritual infants will operate simply off of what sounds right or what feels good to them. Instead of operating on what does God's word say and what does objective truth say, they operate on simply what feels good to them or what feels right to them. It's interesting having these conversations with, with some of these people. You know, in ministry, they'll be in my office, sitting across my desk, and I'll, know, I'll ask them, how do you know what you're doing is right? And they're stumped. They don't know how to answer the question apart from it just feels like the right thing to do. They become the ultimate authority. Fifth, spiritual infants will often fear man more than fearing God. They'll fear man more than they fear God. Sixth, spiritual infants will lose a taste for biblical instruction and will prefer spiritual junk food. They'll lose a taste for biblical instruction and prefer instead spiritual junk food. Ear-tickling, man-centered, man-pleasing messages. And so, seventh, if not checked, spiritual infants will increasingly question good doctrine and will increasingly embrace bad doctrine. They'll increasingly question good doctrine and increasingly embrace bad doctrine. And sadly, because of all of these things, spiritual infants often demonstrate their lack of understanding By their behavior, through their unwise decisions, through their crude humor, through their sinful appetites, through their immoral desires, through their divisiveness. Oftentimes, spiritual infants will give away their stunted spiritualness by the way that they behave. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3? I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? The Apostle Paul identifies their spiritual immaturity by their behavior. If you knew, you wouldn't act the way that you were acting. If you were mature you would not be acting the way that you are acting. So it's a dangerous thing. It's easy to dismiss this as not a big deal. It's one of those spiritual diseases that creeps into your life and kind of takes hold, and maybe at first the the evidence of it doesn't seem like it's all that severe. But as it grows, and as it grows, and as it takes control of your life, it affects you in so many ways, because your thinking then affects your behavior. And instead of trusting the Lord, instead of trusting His Word, you trust your own intuition, your own wisdom, your own feelings. You go with your gut, and it can lead to spiritual ruin. This is why the Apostle Paul had a singular focus to his ministry. 1 Corinthians 2.2 For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We used to have this uh, online newsletter kind of thing. We called it The Beacon. And... uh, I don't know. I just, I know I'm a pastor and I probably shouldn't admit this to you, but I'm just going to let you know. I hate writing. I, I really do. It's like my, one of my least favorite disciplines. I just don't like writing. And so the editor of the Beacon would contact me and ask me for my articles that were due. And I was just like, Ugh, it was like pulling teeth. It was like pulling teeth. I'm like, I wanted a ghostwriter. Just write it for me, you know, and I'll just sign it at the bottom. It sounds like me, you know, and it'll be, it'll be good. I, I, and one of the things that I remember was the pressure. Because when, once you put something online, the world can read it. And so it wasn't just that I had to turn in articles, but these articles needed to be good. They needed to be worth reading, right? And I remember talking to the editor and telling him, I just can't think of new things to write. And I'll never forget his response. Then talk about the old things. Because that's what we need to hear. We need to hear the old truths. We need to hear good, sound theology that has survived the test of time. That's what we need to hear. They don't need new and novel. They need old truths. They need sound truths. Go back to what you know is truth. Simple truths that the church needs to hear. And that really helped me. Because it seems like today in the church, there's a new movement every single day. It seems like there's, like as a pastor, it's impossible to keep up, right? It's impossible to keep up with every trend and every movement. You know, a word that gets thrown around today is deconstruction, right? Don't, don't just chase after the faith of your fathers. And before that, it was the woke movement or progressive Christianity or church growth movement or the emergent church or the new perspective on Paul or the open theism. I mean, there's no end to it. And I remember when, I, when, when it was open theism, and I went and bought like you know the top three or four books on it, and I started reading through it. And by the time I got halfway through the first one, that one seemed to kind of fade away. And then it was the new perspective on Paul, so I picked up the top three or four books on that and started reading. And by the time I got halfway through, there was a new movement, and it just seemed like the church was being tossed here and there by every wind and every wave of doctrine. In the early years of being a pastor, I was invited to a pastor fellowship by InterVarsity in San Diego. And there was a, a meeting at a, at a small restaurant. I went into the meeting room and I remember sitting there at the table and I was sharing the table with three Catholic priests. And uh, my first thought was, what are they doing here? <laughs> right? And then secondly, the, the guy who was kind of like the southern regional director of InterVarsity had just published a new book. And he went up, and it was the whole promotion of his new book. And he said, men, uh, I have come up with a new way of sharing the gospel. And I thought, what was wrong with the old way? In fact, I found out later at Talbot Seminary, they use his book as an example of what not to do. There's always something new. There's always something coming along. There's always some trend. And it seems good. It seems right. I heard about this in the Czech Republic. One of the main denominations in the Czech Republic, the churches were all kind of in one voice advocating because they want growth. And the church growth movement had kind of hit that country. And they were saying, what we need to do is sing secular songs in our churches to get the people in. And then once they're in, then we can just give them the word of God. I remember the missionary that we work with, Meinolf Melvig, was like the lone voice in that denomination to stand up and say, we're not doing that here. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to give in, even though everyone else thought this is the right thing to do. Because Christianity is not about pragmatism. It's about truth. And there's always going to be a new movement. There's always going to be something that comes along the way that everyone seems to be buying into. Will we have the singular focus that the Apostle Paul had? That I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Will that be this church's focus? Because that's what serves as an anchor for our souls. Biblical truth and spiritual understanding is what leads to maturation. So that when the wind comes and when the waves beat against that boat, You can stand secure knowing it's not going to capsize, knowing it's not going down. The truth alone stands as what provides stability to individuals, but also as a corporate body. The truth is what keeps us together, the truth is what strengthens us. Is that your commitment? And the problem is that we have these forces working against us. Look at it in verse 14. That you're tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. And then look at it, by the trickery of men. By craftiness in deceitful scheming. Trickery is an interesting word in the Greek because it literally means uh, the the casting of dice. Harold Hohner, who writes an excellent commentary on the book of Ephesians, Mentions this that that maybe the Apostle Paul is talking about loaded dice, you know, a cheater's dice. This is the trickery of men, Uh, the craftiness. You know, this is a a word that can be uh, translated as clever. And, And this is something that we tend to be impressed with. I don't know if you know people who are just witty. You know, they know how to turn a phrase. They just know the right thing to say. That's what this word is describing. Except these people don't do it just to impress you. These people do it so that they can trick you. And that's why he says it's trickery. It's craftiness in deceitful scheming. And that preposition in, in the Greek, is the same one that we see at the beginning of verse 12. Because he said he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. It's for the purpose of. So notice what the apostle Paul is saying in verse 14. That we're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by craftiness. Why? Because they are doing these things for the purpose of their deceitful scheming. This is purposeful. This isn't just like some unfortunate consequence. This is why they're doing it. They're doing this so that you might be stumbled. They're doing this so that you might go the wayward path. It reminds me of the prosperity gospel preachers who seek to fleece the sheep and deceive people because of their greed for gain. Or many of the cults that operate the same way, feeding off the naivety of their followers. Their intentions and their motives are not good just as God had given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, so these false teachers in their trickery and their craftiness do this for their deceitful scheming. Their intentions are not good. But then my whole point in looking at verse 14 is just to say, Paul does not dismiss this as a small thing. And when we think about the sins of the church, you know, maybe there's a couple that fell into adultery or maybe there was, I don't know, someone who murdered someone over here, you know. And you think about those heinous sins and the, and the, the consequences of those kinds of sins. Spiritual immaturity by comparison seems like such a small thing. It's kind of like white lies or rolling a stop sign or, Speeding on the freeway. Is it really that devastating? The Apostle Paul would say yes. It leaves you open and vulnerable to all sorts of error. If you don't develop spiritually. We require spiritual vigilance to be able to identify stunted growth. And to address it. So this is the benefit. That if you Take in biblical instruction and apply it to your lives. If you are serving one another in the church, like verses 11 through 13 talk about, and you see this maturation in the church, then one of the benefits that you ought to experience together as a church is that you won't be tossed back and forth by every wind and by every wave. That you'll have stability as a ministry. That you'll have a sure footing as a believer You'll no longer exist in this spiritual naivety. But your spirituality will be marked by understanding. That's the benefit. But there's a second one. Not only, verse 14, that you'll, you know, no longer be spiritually naive. But the second benefit we see in verses 15 and 16, that you will grow up to Christ-likeness you'll grow up to Christ-likeness. It says in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a whole mouthful. So let's just break this down. Verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. And we got to pause there. The goal is Christ. The goal is that we grow up into him, that we grow up into Christ. And notice he says that we do this in all aspects. We do this in every way. This this affects our thinking, that if I am in Christ, and if I am growing in all aspects into Christ, then what I ought to see is not me just thinking my own thoughts and and believing what I think is right in my own understanding, but yielding to his thoughts, giving myself to, to his instruction, and saying, God, what you think is how I want to think. It involves our speaking, that I'm not just going to go about saying the things that I want to say. God, what are the words that you want me to say? It involves our turning from sin. It involves how we serve together in the church. It involves our relationships and our friendships and our dating. It involves our working and, and employment. It involves our family And how we exist as husbands and wives and as sons and daughters. In other words, when we are growing up in all aspects into Christ, there is no territory in our lives that is off-limits. It was Greg Laurie who gave this illustration. I thought it was brilliant. And talking about the effect of the gospel in a person's life and I remember being at a harvest crusade and he shared this. It was one of those things that stuck with me. That when you get saved, it's like a moving truck comes up into your driveway and on the side of the truck it says Father and Son Moving Company. And it's like Christ comes into your home and of course you welcome him in but then he starts to absolutely devastate it. Tears off the art off the wall throws all the furniture into a heap on the driveway. Everything is going out the door. And you're sitting there in shock. No, I've had that lamp for 10 years. And he takes it outside and throws it on the driveway. And once all the furniture is gone, he's still not done. He starts ripping up the carpet. He starts tearing off the wallpaper until there is nothing left. And you're sitting there like, oh, no. What just happened? And then he opens the moving van and you start to understand as he brings in the nicest carpet and lays it on your floor and puts up the nicest wallpaper on your walls and the nicest furniture and starts replacing all the things that you had before. It's a wonderful illustration, but so so often as believers, we think that there's still a junk drawer somewhere in that house that Christ does not have access to. God, you can take everything, just not this. You can touch every aspect of my life, but please don't touch this. You can have everything, just not my health. You can have everything, just not my children. You can have everything, just not my marriage. It doesn't work that way. Jesus Lord of all. And that's why the Apostle Paul identifies him in verse 15 as the head. He'd done this at least two other times in, in verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 22 and again in chapter 5 verse 23, referring to Jesus Christ as the head, a, a statement of his authority over the church because the head directs the body. It's about yielding your life to Christ. It's that Galatians 2.20 mentality that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's that Philippians 1.21 mentality that for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is this? Because listen to the language of verse 16 from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. A couple of verses I want you to look at. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, ah, verse 19 where the Apostle Paul is talking about the effect of the gospel in the life of the church, and especially in bringing Gentiles and Jews together as one body. And so he says in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And here it is in verse 21, In whom the whole body being fitted together. It's the same word. The whole body being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. I don't want to mix metaphors, but Paul does, right? In in chapter 4, he's talking about the body. In chapter 3, he used the imagery of a building, but the idea is the same. Just as Christ is the head of the body, he is the cornerstone of the building. And whether we're talking about a body or whether we're talking about a building Christ is the one who fits us together. He's the one who fits us together. It's a similar idea that's communicated in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 19. Colossians 2, 19, where it says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God which is from God. And my point is this, that when you read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, those verbs are passive. He's the one who fits us together. He's the one who holds us together. The participles are passive. It's almost like it's talking about the skeletal structure and the ligaments that hold those bones together. He's the one who provides the frame, and He's the one who provides the glue. It's His body. He's the reason we have a body, and He's the goal. So we grow up into Him. We grow up into him, meaning that as a body, we don't have the prerogative to say, you know what, this is what this church ought to look like. We don't have the prerogative to say, this is what this church ought to do. He's the one who provides the blueprints. He's the one who provides the framing. He's the one who holds the entire thing together. It's just left to us to fit into it. We grow up into him. It's like there is a Jesus mold and God is stamping us into his image. That's the desire. That's the goal. It grieves me when I meet people who are professing Christians who tell me that they don't want anything to do with the church. They don't want anything to do with the body. As if Jesus is just the head. And the body is just us. As if he has nothing to do with the rest of the body. Nothing to do with the the rest of the bones and the ligaments. No, he shaped it. And he holds it together. If you don't want anything to do with the body, then you don't want anything to do with Christ. It's his. And the goal of how the church ought to be structured, whether it's here in America or whether anywhere else in the world, is exactly this. How do we grow in Christ? How do we find ourselves stamped into His image, in the structure that He has provided, in the glue that He has provided to hold us together? How do we live up to this? How do we do this? He answers the question. In verse 15, speaking the truth in love, which is an interesting translation because the participle doesn't say speaking. It's literally translated truthing. Truthing in love. And yeah, obviously that would involve speaking, but it involves so many other things i like the net's translation of this practicing the truth in love that's the idea here practicing the truth and love whether it's speaking the truth or whether it's living that truth out this is the idea that the truth becomes the instruction manual and we seek to live and abide by it what does god's word say And then how can I communicate it? And how can I live it out? How can I exercise this faithfully? And here's the qualifier. In love. Because biblically speaking, you don't have that tension between truth and love. Truth is never cold. Truth is loving. It's warm. Truth should produce love because God's word commands it. It doesn't mean that we can't be direct. It doesn't even mean that we can't be stern. Sometimes people need a hard word. But it doesn't excuse us from love. We can be direct, but we can be loving in how we are direct. We can be straight to the point but we do this in love. I like what John MacArthur says, strong preaching and sound doctrine doesn't make hard people. It makes soft people. It makes loving people, because that's the idea here. The proper working of each individual part is just another way of saying truthing, The proper working of every individual part is what this participle is talking about. As we function together as a church, how ought we to function together? In love. In love. That's what the Lord is looking for. All this emphasis on the truth, bringing about spiritual growth, it's so important not to forget that the outworking of that truth in biblical application is love. So those are the benefits. What does it look like? Having provided the means through the instruction of the church, how do we know that as a ministry we are growing up? How do we know that we have this maturation in and of ourselves? Well, we're no longer given to spiritual naivety. And we see a Christ-likeness in us, in our commitment to the truth, in love. And folks, Christ makes this possible. And calls us to. And I think about the amazing grace behind this instruction. That he wants us to be like him. He wants us to grow up into him. This is grace upon grace. And it's all because of what Jesus did for us. He's the reason we have a body in the first place. He's the reason that we can call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. He's the reason that we come together to serve one another. He's the reason we sing. He's the reason behind all of it because of what he did for us. That he provided a way for our pardon. He provided a way for our forgiveness. We could not make it on our own. We can't do enough good things to merit heaven. We can't do enough good things to earn our way into God's favor. We needed a savior and he came to save us. Jesus went to the cross and he died and he rose again purchasing our pardon, buying our freedom, adopting us into his family so that we could be his all of this for our benefit and for His glory. I just love that because it it could have just been for His glory alone and that's it. But what I love is that in our pursuit of His glory, there is great benefit for ourselves. He doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves but provides for us and protects us and cares for us that we might grow into him. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it isn't just that we want to save you from eternal condemnation, even though that is absolutely true, but it's also to help open your eyes to see the wonderful things that you are missing without Christ in your life. Because Christianity isn't just about a bunch of do's and don'ts. I know him. And he resides in me. And I get to grow up into him. And my life has meaning and purpose that it never had before. He's everything to me. He's the goal. And if you don't know Christ, then you need to know him. Because apart from him, yes, there's only wrath and there's only condemnation. But with him, there is forgiveness of sins. With him, there's grace and salvation. And so would you trust in Jesus for salvation? Would you trust in him as your Lord and Savior? You would have the forgiveness of sins and hope for eternal life. It's only in him and in no other. He's the only way to the Father. Would you trust in Him? Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, what an encouragement to consider that Jesus Christ Himself is our goal. That what we need more than anything, Lord, is more of Him. More of Christ in our lives. And I pray, Father, that You would accomplish that. For each one individually, individually, And for this body corporately, Father, that that's what this church would be known for. A spiritual stability, growth, Christ-likeness. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to help this body grow in those ways and be with the leadership to give them wisdom to shepherd. And that the church, in exercising your truth, would do so in love For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.